The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Second Peter one sixteen to twenty one. We told you about the time our Lord Jesus Christ came with power, but we didn't make up stories when we told you about it. With our own eyes, we saw him in all his majesty. God the Father gave him honor and glory. The voice of the majestic glory came to him. It said, This is my son, and I love him. I am very pleased with him. We ourselves heard the voice that came from heaven. We were with him on the sacred mountain. The word of the prophets is made more certain. We have that word. You must pay attention to it. It is like a light shining in a dark place. It will shine until the day Jesus comes. Then the morning star will rise in your hearts. Above all, here's what you must understand. No prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. It never came simply because a prophet wanted it to. Instead, the Holy Spirit guided the prophets as they spoke. So prophecy comes from God. Thank you, Samantha. And you're right, we just reached on this passage a couple weeks ago. Uh, But you know, it's such an important subject that I wanted to address it uh, two times. And I want to talk about, you know, why do I believe in the Bible? And we're going to be going through this text so I encourage you to keep your finger on the text. Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, 16 to 21. God, we just thank you for your word that it's flawless. The entrance of your word brings light. That your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you, Father, that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will last forever. So God, we pray that you would help us. You give us faith to believe and to trust and obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so when the chips are down, what do you lean on? We got COVID. What brings stability to your life? What gives you insight? In short, what is your final answer, your final authority when pressures and problems blow your way and your emotions are out there on a stormy sea somewhere? Do you have a place? Do you have a a solid place, a stable place, a firm place, a secure place, a reliable place? You wake up with a small headache and it doesn't seem to go away. So you go to the doctor and x-rays are taken. And it's a brain tumor. How do you handle that? 
To whom or to what do you turn? I mean, you need something solid to lean on. What is it? The stock market is in a tailspin, and you had invested quite a bit of money. You know, economic recession is coming. What do you do? You've lost almost everything. Life is so unstable now. You need some stability. Where do you find it? You get a phone call, and it's a police officer. And he informs you that a loved one of yours has been killed instantly in a car accident. How do you handle your grief? What gives you the courage to accept the truth and to go on? You're faced with a moral decision. I mean, who do you talk to? Uh, Where do you go for some of that good advice? What is your final answer, your final authority in life when all hell breaks loose? Well, what if I told you there was a book that could bring hope to the hopeless, a book so powerful it could change your life, a book that you can really lean on, a book that could guide you and direct you through life, a, a book that doesn't exaggerate, but it tells the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. What if I told you about a book that could actually nourish and feed your soul and strengthen you like nothing else can? A book that will never be outdated, but will last forever. A book that communicates the very thoughts and the words of God. How much money would you give to hear God's voice? To understand the thoughts of God? Isn't that what we need? In this world of uncertainty, a word from God, there is no more reliable authority on earth than God's word, the Bible. And I stand with John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist Church, when he said, oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. And yet, according to the Princeton Research Center, only 11% of Americans read the Bible daily. 22% weekly. 14% monthly. 22% never. 5% can't say. And yet we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Maybe we're like Mark Twain who said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts of the Bible I do understand that give me fits. (laughs) Anyway, today I want to talk about why I choose to believe the Bible. And like I said at the beginning, it's the question, really, that every generation must answer because it strikes at the very core, the very foundation of our faith. Why do I choose to believe the Bible? There's an old Baptist scholar named A.T. Robinson. He once wrote, kind of with tongue in cheek, one proof of the inspiration of Scripture is that it has withstood so many years of poor preaching. I represent that. So we could say, you know, I believe in the Bible because it has withstood all these years of Dave's poor preaching. But we got to do better than that. Remember the serpent of old at the very beginning said to Eve, Genesis chapter 3, he said, did God say, remember God said, hey, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, but not this one, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that one. And then Satan comes along and says, did God say? And I tell you what, the devil really hasn't changed his tactic at all. He's still whispering that question. 
Did God say? Did God really write this book? So you're sitting in a philosophy class in some university. Or maybe you're out for coffee with somebody. You're out for dinner with a, with a different family. And, and the question comes to you. Why do you choose to believe the Bible? What would you say? Because it survived Dave's preaching for all these years? Well, that's an answer. I don't think that'll cut it. Some say, well, I was raised that way. I don't think that's going to cut it either. Well, it works for me. I don't think that one's going to cut it either. Jesus said we should love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our what? With our mind. And Peter just got through writing in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And so we have a reasonable faith. So what is your answer to the question, why do you choose to believe the Bible? Listen, we must be able to answer that question in our culture today. I tell you, it's a, it's a legitimate question and it, and it deserves a legitimate answer. Now let me say this, the Bible's not on trial here. We are. And based on our scripture passage that Samantha just read this morning, I would say, when somebody would ask me, you know, Dave, why do you choose to believe the Bible? I would say something like this. It's a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And they report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. And so we're going to unpack that phrase a little bit, and it's based on the scripture that we just read. So keep your finger on the text here. I want to break it down into six points, six parts. And first of all, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. In other words, we didn't follow myths. We didn't follow legends. We didn't follow fairy tales. You know, we didn't follow things that were made up. I want us to look at uh, Luke's gospel real quick here. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke's gospel. Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke. He puts it this way in his prologue. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might believe God on blind faith. No! So that you might know the certainty. Another version says, so that you might know the exact truth of the things that you've been taught. So we have a reliable collection of historical documents. No myths here, no fairy tales here, no legends here. These are things that actually happened, things that actually transpired in history and they were recorded for us. 
And not only do we have a reliable collection of historical documents, but point number two, they were written down by eyewitnesses. I mean, look what he says at the end of verse 16. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw, we heard, we touched. Anyone love crime dramas? Anybody remember Quincy? <laughs> Good old Quincy. And then CSI came along. Uh, CSI is kind of like Quincy on steroids. Uh, Quincy was the man. You know, he could figure out all that stuff. And you know what would mess up an episode of S, uh, CSI or Quincy or Magnum P.I.? If early on you have corroborating eyewitness testimony, you got no mystery then. And that's what we have when we read the Bible, corroborating eyewitness testimony. If you just turn back a few pages from 2 Peter to 1 John, look what, 1 John, look what John says in his first letter. 1 John chapter 1, 1 to 3. Listen to this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. We, have, we, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that uh, what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. You know, eyewitnesses, we saw, we heard, we touched, we were there. A reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses, but also during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. That's point number three. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the great resurrection chapter of the Bible, where Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And after he was resurrection, re- resurrected, he, it says he wrote, he, then he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the 12, and then he appeared to all the disciples at once, and then he appeared to over 500 brethren at one time, and he says these words, most of whom are still living. I love that. I mean, when you do the math, you realize that when 1 Corinthians was written, there were over, at least over 300 eyewitnesses, at least, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ who were still alive at the time. I know I've heard all the arguments like, uh, well, Dave, you see what happened? Was there some individuals that came along and they kind of doctored up the Bible and uh, it's been translated so many times and it's changed so many times and then there's this myth of these overzealous monks who changed the Bible so that things would kind of match up so it would look like the older, like older documents than we actually have. And in fact, you know, you know, Dave, we don't have the originals. <gasps> oh, we're supposed to shake in our boots, right? We don't have the originals. <gasps> Listen, Calvary. If overzealous monks want to change the Bible, let me explain to you what they would have had to do. I think three levels of conspiracy. Number one, we call it the manuscript conspiracy. I mean, when we're talking about just the New Testament itself, there are over 6,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts for the New Testament itself. Now, that may not sound a lot 
like a lot to you, but I, 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 can I compare it to a couple of other things? Like Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. I mean, that's how we know about Julius Caesar and his conquests. And we have about 10 manuscripts. And then uh, Aristotle's Poetics. We have nearly five manuscripts. And when it comes to the writings of Herodotus, we have less than 10 manuscripts. And when it comes to the writings of Homer, less than 10 of each of his writings. And then when it comes to the New Testament, we've got 6,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts for the New Testament Calvary. That's not even close. Well, you don't have the originals. No, we really don't. But guess what? We can get earlier than A.D. 120 with some of the copies that we have. And when it comes to Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, the earliest copy that we can put our hands on was written 900 years after the original. But nobody's tearing down the walls in college because they're reading Caesar. When it comes to Aristotle, the earliest thing we can put our hands on was written 1,400 years after the original. But when it comes to the New Testament, we can put our hands on documents that were written within decades of the originals. So if those overzealous monks wanted to, quote, doctor up the Bible, what they would have had to have done is find over 6,000 manuscripts, change all of them, not show their ink work, get them all back to where they stole them from, and never tell anybody what they did. That's just level one. You know, and then we got level two. Jesus said what? He said, you guys go. You guys go and make disciples of all, of ta ethne, of all nations, of all people groups. You know, funny thing about people groups. They tend to speak different languages. And so in the first few centuries, we had the Bible translated into Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. So now these overzealous monks, they have to find these 6,000 Greek manuscripts, change those, doctor them up, don't show your ink work, get them back, go find all the Syriac, Coptic, and Latin translations of those Greek manuscripts, change them to match the lies that you told in another language, and get those back where you stole them from, and that's just level two. Now you got level three. The early church fathers had this terrible habit of writing commentary on the New Testament. So much so that the Princeton scholar Bruce Metzger says if all we had of the New Testament was the quotations and citations of the early church fathers, we could reproduce over 95% of the New Testament just from their writings. And so now, these overzealous monks have to find 6,000 manuscripts and portions of manuscripts, steal them, change them, don't show your ink work, get them back without anybody finding out, and they have to find the Syriac, Coptic, Latin translations, change those to match the lies that they told in the 6,000 manuscripts, get those back where they stole them from, and, find, and then find all the writings, all the writings of the early church fathers, change those to match the lies that they told two layers ago, and, 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 and get those put back, and never tell anybody what they did, and never ever ever get caught you know God help you if you believe that and a lot of universities professors teach that we have a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses now so far, all we have is a good history book. <laughs> now it gets good, okay? 
Point number four, they report to us supernatural events. I mean, look what Peter says here in 2 Peter 1, 17 and 18. Go back to 2 Peter 1, 17 and 18. It says, For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. You know, now we got the the Mount of Transfiguration. You know that story, Matthew chapter 17. Jesus took his three closest disciples up this mountain, Peter, James, and John, and before their very eyes, he was transfigured, and then appearing with Jesus was Elijah and Moses, and then the voice came, this is my son, whom I am very well pleased. This is a supernatural event. Jesus was transfigured before their very eyes, and there's other events in the New Testament, right? Right? I mean, talking about a, you know, we're talking about a woman with an issue of blood who's healed instantly. The man with a withered hand, healed instantly. People who are blind from birth, deaf from birth, mute from birth, lame from birth, healed instantly. We got Jesus walking on the water. We got Jesus cleansing the leper. We got Jesus feeding the 5,000. We got Jesus stilling the storm. And then we got the big one, Friday, dead. Sunday risen. Amen? Come on, give me an amen for that one. Yeah. We have a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events. And then point number five. Supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. And we're not talking about this general Nostradamus type stuff. Specific prophecies. For example, Jesus on the cross. You know, if this was the first century, we might be speaking to one another in Aramaic. Now, if I wanted you to open your Bible to Psalm 22, I wouldn't say, Open your Bible to Psalm 22. Uh, Because we've only had chapter and verses for a few hundred years. So it's the first century. We're talking to each other in Aramaic. I would have told you to turn to the title of Psalm 22, which would have been the first line of Psalm 22. I would have told you to open up your scroll to Eli, Eli, Laba Sabachthani. Uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that ought to sound familiar because that's exactly what Jesus said while he was being crucified. So if you got, you know, if you could just turn to Psalm 22, I'm gonna go through a few of these verses to make my point. Uh, Psalm 22, verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then look at verses six to eight. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Sound familiar? I mean, that's what's being said to Jesus while he's being crucified. Look at verses 12 to 14. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey. Open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. You know, interesting. 
you know? Pierced him in the side, right? Punctured the pericardium. Blood and water rushed out. And then look at verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. How about this wine vinegar on this sponge, Jesus? Because you did say, I thirst. And then look at verse 16. It says, dogs have surrounded me. Well, that's Gentiles, right? And then it says, a band of evil men has encircled me. One on the right, one on the left. And then it says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Why? Because nobody had to break break your legs to hasten your death or to speed up your death. Folks, that was written... A thousand years before Jesus was born, it was written by a man who never once saw crucifixion in his life because crucifixion had not yet been invented. And that's why Peter can say back in our text, words like verse 19 of 2 Peter chapter 1. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. We have a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies. We just looked at a couple of those examples. Now here's the kicker, point six, okay? They claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. If you go back to our text, 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God. They claimed that these were God's words and not theirs. And that's why these prophecies were fulfilled hundreds, thousands of years afterwards. And that's why they use phrases like, and thus says the Lord. Or, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, or, and God said to Abraham, they say that these are are God's words and not men's words. But nobody wants to believe that because they know that men wrote the Bible, and when we say it's the word of God, they say, no, it's the word of men because men put pen to paper, and you cannot trust the things that were written by men. And I always think that's kind of interesting. I mean, can you remember growing up in math class? You know, you got something wrong. I mean, you're supposed to use this uh, Pythagorean theory, you know, like uh, A squared plus B squared equals C squared thing. You know, and so because you didn't use the Pythagorean theory, you know, you got it wrong. And you think, man, you can't mark me off for that. I mean, that came out of a math book. And a man wrote that math book. And that means it's fallible. I mean, just because... Man put pen to paper doesn't mean you can't trust what's written. The question that you ask is this, is what's written reliable? Is it internally consistent? Two weeks ago I talked about, you know, scripture interprets scripture. Is it internally consistent? Is it corroborated? Big word, Dave. Oh, big word, corroborated. What does that mean? Well, I don't know, maybe corroboration, maybe three languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, maybe three continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, maybe 40 writers of whom never met one another, who wrote over a period of 1,500 years 
into this one singularly woven together story? How's that for corroboration? Here's another one that I hear. Dave, you know, you believe that? I mean, you, you believe the Bible? You see, Dave, I am a man of science. And unless you can prove it to me scientifically, I just can't believe that. And I just think, what? You're gonna tell me you're a person of science and you'd believe it if I proved it to you scientifically? Why, why do you want me to use the scientific method? You don't use the scientific method on you know, historical events. I mean, here's the scientific method. In order to use the scientific method, something has to be observable, measurable, repeatable, right? Calvary, you can't use the scientific method to prove George Washington was our first president. Why? Because his presidency is not observable, measurable, and repeatable. You don't use the scientific method there. You have to use the evidence method, really. And so what you do is what we do in a courtroom. You say, hey, do we have any eyewitnesses? Well, I just told you that we got some of those. You know, and do these eyewitnesses tell the same story? Yep, Friday dead, Sunday risen. Can I get another amen? Yes, the same story. They say something's gonna happen and it actually happens exactly the way they said. See, we have no external evidence that would argue against the Bible's claim to be the word of God. None whatsoever, none No archaeological find would argue against the Bible. Archaeology has only validated and vindicated Scripture. So the really intelligent thing to do is just believe what it says. You know? Not just because it has survived all these years of my poor preaching. And not because, you know, I was raised that way. Uh, or I don't choose to believe the Bible because I tried it and it works for me. I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitness during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses and they report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings were divine rather than hum- uh, human in origin. And that is why Calvary every Sunday That's what we want to do here. I just don't want to give you a bunch of opinions. You know, I just want to explain the scripture. I want to go the verse by verse. I want the precept by precept. I want line upon line. I want to preach the word in season, out of season. We want to preach the text in its context. You know, I try not to be more creative than God. We just want to preach the Bible, preach the word of God because it is the word of God. And the Bible answers every relevant question that we have. 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures of God breathe. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You know, there's a lot of people that believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and the sufficiency of scripture, but just don't read it. It's like, you know, we all know how to eat right, don't we? But we just don't do it. We know what's healthy and what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat, but we don't do it. So just because you believe in the inerrancy of the Bible or the sufficiency of Scripture, you know, we need to 
We need to read it. We need to eat it, right? We need to eat that that word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. We've got to teach the people of God. Number one, that the Bible has the answer. The Bible has the answer. And number two, how to learn it and how to give it. Hebrews chapter three, uh, 12 and 13, we're almost done. It says, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another. Some versions say, exhort one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by, its sinful, by, by sin's deceitfulness. So what do you exhort with? Not your wisdom, not my wisdom. That's hopeless. We exhort with the word of God. So speak it to people. Speak it into people in the fight of faith. Oh, how important it is to store up the word of God in your mind and in your heart if you want to minister to people and help them fight the fight of faith every day, day by day. Parents for their children, children for their friends, small groups to each other, students to roommates. What we need from each other is the word of God. When I'm confused, give me the word of God. When I'm arrogant, give me the word of God. When I'm lustful, Give me the word of God. When I'm frightened, give me the word of God. When I'm suffering, give me the word of God. When I'm angry, give me the word of God. When I'm dying, give me the word of God. Minister to me. As Paul was ready to die, you know, martyrdom was drawing near. The apostle Paul, he he wrote to Timothy and he told Timothy, In his second letter, be diligent to come to me quickly and bring the books, especially the parchments. Isn't that something? I mean, think of it. Here Paul was in prison. You know, death was near. You know, heaven was soon to receive him. But this man felt the need for more reading especially the parchments, the scriptures. Do we have such a love for the scriptures? If you don't have a reading plan already, I invite you to join my brother and I. I think I said a couple weeks ago that Gary and I read through the archaeological Bible last year, and we had like a little reading plan. And this year we're going to go through the Tree of Life Bible. It's a messianic uh, translation of the Bible. And um, darn, I was going to bring that uh, reading plan up here. And that's the second service in a row. I didn't bring it up. But I, I have some reading plans that we go through. We're in the second week if you're interested in reading the exact same thing that my brother Gary and I. Already about 10 people have uh, gotten one of these reading plans from me. And it's a, it's a way to read together and kind of, you know, in an indirect way to hold each other a little bit accountable. But if you're interested in that, I just invite you to to read with Gary and and me. But getting back to this scripture, you know, any that that we that we preached on today, anybody who can memorize, you know, this passage of scripture in its context, I think can learn to give the answer that I just gave you. I mean anybody. Anybody. 
We need to get this into our minds so that when somebody asks you a question like, why do you choose to believe the Bible? You don't have to fumble around. You don't have to him and haw. You don't have to say, well, because it survived Dave's preaching for all these years. Or you don't have to give some lame answer like, you know, I was raised that way. Or I tried it. It works for me. You can look him right in the eye. In love, you can look them right in the eye. And you can say, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents that's written down by eyewitnesses. During the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, they report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. And by the way, if you want to put a little frosting on the cake, I tried it, and it works for me. Would you bow in prayer with me? I invite the praise team to come. You know, God's word has the power to change life. The Bible says we're born again by the word of God. I would encourage you this week not only to read God's word and apply it to your heart and life, but also to be very grateful for this precious word that's been passed on to us. I want to close in prayer, but if you brought your own Bible today, I want you to take this book and I want you to just hold it right close to your heart right now while I pray. Father, as we hold the word of God close to our hearts, we recognize that literally thousands of people have paid an incredible price for us to sit here on Sundays and open it up and apply it to our lives. We are so grateful for that. God, would you help us to understand that this precious word is from you to us. It is a love letter. You became flesh. You literally fleshed the word out for us. It changes us. It stabilizes us. It gives us strength. It's our daily manna. So God, help us to always put it in its proper place in our lives. And God, help us not only to respect it and have a sense of reverence for it, but God, help us to utilize it and pour it into our lives. Help us to assimilate. Help us to grow strong because of it. And God, help us to let it flow through us because the only open Bible some are going to see is our lives. And how can we live it if we haven't learned it? May we love it like we love the newspaper or our favorite magazines or our favorite books. God, help us not to be guilty of putting other things before it. May it be the fertilizer of the seed that is planted that grows, that causes us to grow. And heaven and earth will pass away, God, but your word will remain. And we're so grateful for it. And we leave here this morning with a new determination to, in a greater way, apply it to our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, leaving the results to you. And God's people said, amen. You know, we're gonna sing a hymn uh, that's very familiar to all of us, but I don't think I need to say this, but many people over the centuries have tried to prove that the Bible is not the word of God. And when they started doing that, some have come to Christ just because they started investigating and reading the word of God, but you know, those kind of uh, tactics, you know, trying to prove the Bible's, you know, not the word of God, it's like shooting peas at the rock of Gibraltar. <laughs> and like I said at the beginning of this service, we're not here to judge the Bible. 
The Bible judges us. The Bible is not on trial. We are. And God, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us not to take it for granted even if we have 10 Bibles around the house. Lord, help us to feed upon your word. You said man shouldn't live on bread alone but by every word that comes out of your mouth. God, help us to to feed ourselves your word. And I thank you that it's flawless, that the entrance of your word brings light. Thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, you have called us to hold forth the word of God to a crooked and depraved generation. Help us to do that as we walk in the light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.